17. John chapter 17. We're returning. If you haven't been with us, we're going through the Gospel of John. We found ourselves in chapter 17. It is indeed the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. The high priest in the Old Testament would go in once a year to give a prayer and then a sacrifice. Christ is doing that here. It's the day before. He is the eve. It's the night before. He's going to sacrifice his life and make atonement for sin, but he will pray. And we're able to listen in, if you will, and hear his prayer on behalf of his disciples. He's praying specifically for those 11 that is in the room. He sent Judas away. He was not a true disciple. The 11 that remain are. Jesus prayed for them, in particular, that they would glorify Christ in their life, that they would indeed be faithful, loyal, that they would have unity among themselves, joy as they would go about, that they would be separated or sanctified from the world, and indeed he commissioned them as sent ones, or in this case specifically, Apostles with a capital A in a technical way. Now, I've said all along that, yeah, it is directed to these, but it applies to all who would follow in their steps. That is, all who would come to Christ and believe in him, all that come to Christ and believe in him, or hence we use the term Christian. You could also use the term disciple. You could use the term follower. There's aspects of this that it certainly applies, and I've said that all along, but you don't need to take my word for it. Jesus explains that in our text this morning. We're at verse 20 in chapter 17, where he specifically says in his prayer, and I'm glad he does this to clarify, he says, I I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Remember, Jesus has already stated he's not praying for the world. He's praying for them. Who's the them? Verse 9, that is the one that is that the ones that have been given to him by the Father. World in in that sense, here it can, it means two different things. One, it does refer to people. He's not praying for just everybody in generic person. But then we get down to verse 11 in chapter 17. He uses world in a different way, and that is the world system. Where he says, I'm no longer in the world. That is the world system. He was physically there on earth, but he's not in this system anymore. He wasn't being engaged with it. This is his final prayer. He's going to go to Calvary. He says, but they, that's these disciples that remain, they are in the world. I'm coming to you, he would say, Holy Father, keep them in your name. And he prays for their unity, which we're going to focus on some today, again, as he repeats it. World, in this sense, is taken as fallen human system. A world that is corrupted by the works of the world, the works of the devil. They're synonymous. 
He says, I don't ask that you take them out, verse 15, but that you keep them from who? The evil one, the devil himself. They are not of the world, that is, they're no longer part of that world system, just as I am no longer of the world. I, or should I say, just as I am not of the world. Christ was never of the world. And those that come to Christ are no longer of the world. They were, but he leads them out of the domain of darkness into the domain of light, into Christ. There is a distinction then between those that are in Christ and those that are not, both in them as a person, as a regenerate, but also in their mind is that they have a totally different, and we might say, world view. Jesus prays for those that have been taken out of the sea of fallen humanity, sanctified, washed by the world from the fallen system. But as I noted already, verse 20, it isn't just these 11. They're the immediate focus. They will have a distinctive role to play in church history. But this prayer then is applicable to all who would be Christians, disciples, followers of Christ, learners of him. Who's the you? It is those who believe in me through their word. Verse 20. The apostles will be foundational to the church. It is built then on those apostles who function as missionaries and go about the land preaching the gospel. There are prophets then that are in place who know the very words of Christ before they're put in scripture. That's the foundation. It's a unique time. Christ, the chief cornerstone, equips them to go out and preach the gospel and to build churches. Preach Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sin. They, they will be given a costly mission, these in particular. The job that they are going to give will cost them their life. They will literally pick up their cross and follow Christ on mission. That is our mission. May not have the same exact role, but can I tell you this? All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's not going to be equal. You'll have your unique thing to bear and to carry, and maybe a unique calling to go to certain places and to do certain things, but I can assure you this. Stand up for Christ. And the world system will want to bring you down. Whatever mission or ministry Christ has given to you, our role then is to glorify him in all we do, even in death. In chapter 21, when we get to it, Peter, he reminds the disciples that indeed Peter that very one would glorify Christ, how? In his martyrdom, in his witness for Christ to the point of death. That was what was chosen for him. After saying this, he tells his disciples, come follow me. God has a wonderful plan for your life. 
In his case, it included martyrdom. I don't know what the case is for you. But the wonderful plan is to follow Christ, to glorify him, to receive the blessings that he has for you in Christ and the mission that he has called you to. Paul had this in his mind when he would say, for me to what? To live is Christ and to die is gain. No wonder these early followers of Christ turned the world upside down. Could you imagine if those that would claim to know Christ and follow him had that idea and ideology in their life? Do you think it might turn a a few people around a bit? Instead, today we have very much ways of just trying to find a way to incorporate and adopt the world system and the world's thinking and make it palatable for all that we all might just get along. It's not going to happen. Christ is not of this world. And neither are those who follow Christ. This task may not be easy for some. Some, it it might be easier than for others. We don't know. But in any case, you're going to need divine help. Jesus Christ knows this, and he sends the Holy Spirit. These folks, these disciples won't be able to make it without the power of the Spirit, and neither will you. It's going to take the power of the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. You can't do it on your own. It's going to take the power of the Spirit to accompany the proclamation of the gospel to change the heart. You're not going to change somebody's heart just by showing them logically what's right and wrong. Of course it is. The world's insane because they're of the evil one. Their mind is corrupted. Yeah, there might be a few points of rational thought there, but not. it seems to be diminishing in these days. But I digress. I'll have to finish the sermon before it gets dark. Let's look at John 20, 17, verse 20, and the rest of the chapter, and maybe I can get a point in or two this week, and you'll have to come back next week for me to finish. But let's read it in context where Jesus then shifts and really summarizes a lot of what he's already said and makes sure that you know it and I know it today. He says, verse 20, I don't pray for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world doesn't know you. That's the problem. Christ says, I know you. And those and these know you, 
know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray the words of Christ recorded for us this slice of his high priestly prayer. I pray that it would reach the hearts of your people to bring about greater faith in Christ. Comfort those that need comfort. Convict those who would go astray. Grant us courage to stay and stand in the truth and an increased amount of joy overflowing thankfulness and praise to your holy name. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if I were to divide this section up, I would do it at least in four parts, unity, perfection, blessedness, and perseverance. And we'll see what I can get to maybe at least the first point today. We shall see. Notice these concepts here as I've read this. You've kind of heard it before if you're reading the text along with us or have been with us as I've taught on this. Jesus has a way of doing this, kind of circling back, going through some of the same themes, but saying it slightly different. This is a great teaching method, by the way. Just because you hear it one time doesn't mean you don't need to hear it again. We need to hear it again and again, and you wouldn't have to hear it if you got it all the first time. <laughs> There's more there, and it's more profound than you can imagine. Jesus is the master teacher. He reminds his disciples and those that will become his disciples to keep these things in mind as, the, as they were tasked to pick up the cross and follow Christ, and as your task to pick up the cross and follow Christ, what will be on your mind? Oh, this cross hurts. It's heavy. It's a lot to bear. No, here's what Christ would have you think on. Verse 21, he talks about a union, a union among the saints in Christ. This union in Christ. He says that they all may be one. This oneness that he's talking here is not a uniformity of ideas or practices. This is a union with God through our relationship with Jesus Christ. And based on that, we can have a union then with one another. It is fundamentally and foundationally a spiritual union. Remember, Christ came to save his people from their sin. The primary target is the Jews. That's who he went to. But he explains, as John does in chapter 10 and verse 16, he says, I have other sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Who are what? They're not Jews. That's, a whole, that's the other class. You're either a Jew or you're not a Jew. The Jew had the covenant and Christ came to them. They didn't receive him. He went out 
because he had others that are not of this fold, and then he would need to bring them in also. And they will listen to my voice. That is, they will obey. They will hear the gospel, they will repent, and they will believe. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. That's the imagery. It is a spiritual union. May be different people involved, different dialects involved, different ethnicities involved, but how are they made one? They are made one through Jesus Christ. Paul would tell the church at Rome in chapter 12 that there are many but one body in Christ, individually members of it. You don't lose your individuality. You always have it. You're always uniquely made for who you are. Whatever those expressions are in your life, but yet there is a oneness. How? Because of your union in Christ. He would tell the church of Galatia in that respect in 328, there's neither Greek or Jew, slave or free, male or female, because you're all one in Christ. Those individuality distinctions are not being diminished. They'll always be there. There will be a uniqueness there, but yet what draws us together is the singularity of our union with Christ. He would unite things together, and as he says to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4 then, there is one body, one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to that indeed call. There is a spiritual union, and because of that spiritual union, then we can have a physical union. We often call that fellowship among the saints. And for here, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 to see it expressed in the early church. As they gathered together, the early church, down to verse 41... They have been brought together and united in Christ through their spiritual union with him, but it does affect how they are and react with one another. Notice verse 41, to describe those that are united with Christ, they received his word, right? They received his word and were baptized. And there were added in that day 3,000 souls. So they come together. They hear the voice of Christ, right? They're folded into it, and they are physically baptized. The physical baptism doesn't do anything about united, uniting somebody to Christ. It simply demonstrates the fact that you are. It is a physical expression of that spiritual reality and then they gather together who these ununited people if you will a thousand thousand three thousand people right now all of a sudden they're united together because they have been immersed in Christ they have all received his word and that is what brings about unity within the church there's diversity of ideas and ideologies and all kinds of things, but what is essential is that you receive the very words of Christ. And how is that expressed? By the way, this is the first sermon I ever preached here, I think, in verse 42. 
And see, this is where you're going to get 12 sermons a day here. But um, any case, I could go off on this one. It's great. Look at verse 30. Look at verse 42 as it expresses then how they behave. Well, they devote themselves. That is a diligent pursuit to what? The apostles' teaching. Of course. The apostles were sent by Christ to teach the people all things that Christ had taught them. Right? So no wonder they're devoted to it because the apostles' teaching is Christ's teaching. The Holy Spirit reminds them, as Christ said, of it, and then they put it in the Word right here. This is why we actually open this up, read it, and then explain it. These are Christ's words. The apostles' teaching. The pastor's teaching needs to be from this. That's what they're devoted to. Diligently studying, hearing, receiving. And notice the second thing, and then the fellowship. They were devoted to fellowship. Fellowship, we know the word in Greek, it's koinonia, you've heard it. The idea is they actually get together and do things together. They're engaged in the life of one another. This third thing that's mentioned is breaking of bread. It is a way of expression of what we just did this morning. And that is essential to their gathering together, their communing with Christ. It's the way they, that's the way they described it at that time, as breaking of bread. They might have had a meal alongside of it in practice, and many times they did, but the feature was communion with Christ, the cup and the bread. And then prayer. These are the four essential signs of a healthy church. To be bathed in prayer. To commune with Christ. To fellowship with one another. To be devoted to the very word of God. Those are the things then that would unify together. God's people praying together and four things together. And what happens? Well, all, verse 43, comes upon any, everyone. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Remember, they had a unique role. And like Christ's word was confirmed by the signs that he did, so his apostles who followed him, apostles with the capital A here, these specific disciples were given unique gifts to verify that indeed what they were doing is the very things that Christ had commanded to them. You don't need it anymore. The reason is they wrote it in a book. Now you have it. That's how you can examine to see if these things are so. Verse 44 they believed together and had all things in common. The idea is now there was a bringing together of people, united together, thousands of people from diverse backgrounds, dialects, ideas, and ideologies, and whatever it might be. All of that is broken down and bound be together as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's that spiritual union that brought about the true relationship. Not because you necessarily liked somebody, you enjoyed their food or their fellowship of just being around their person and personality. It is their union with Christ that brought them together. And in a practical way, in their circumstance, 
This is a description of what happened, not a prescription for everybody to do. Not everybody has to get nailed to a cross upside down like Peter and glorify God, right? (laughs) So not everybody has to go home and get rid of all your things, sell it, and give it to somebody else, except for you. No. Um, It's just a description of what this is. They had a need. There was thousands of people coming to Christ meant they lost their job, their livelihood, their money. Now they, they, they were hungry and needed food. So since they were united with Christ, they were brothers and sisters in Christ in that sense, then they helped one another. They praised God. They were together, they said, they received their food, verse 46, with glad and generous hearts. They were glad in what God gave them. And out of the overflow of what God gave them, they recognized everything that's been given to me. Uh, If I can share it with others that actually have a real need, I will do that. And they began doing that, distributing to the poor and people that had various needs. They praised God and they had favor, verse 47, with all the people. If I ever get to that section there, this is one of the means by which God then would witness to the world. You know why? You come into church and you meet God's people. When I first came here, there wasn't any people. Okay, there were six. And still I started preaching, and then four of them left. Jerry and his wife's the only ones that stayed. Hey, Jerry, glad you stayed. My wife said, that's great. You're just getting rid of dead wood. I said, we don't even have any wood now. Except Jerry. Most faithful man I I know. I never could run him off. I tried. So I would tell people, you know what? You can come here. We don't have all the games and tricks and shows and all kinds of stuff. Now, I like good singing. I like the piano and these beautiful ladies singing. And I like, I even like air conditioning. That's nice. It works. I tell you, one thing we had that was distinctive, I said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to open up the Word of God and explain it. And it might be a judgment to people who will not come in here. I don't want it to be. That was the mission, you know, for most of the Old Testament prophets. You know that, don't you? Nobody wanted to hear what they had to say. They got a lot worse treatment than I'd ever get. Some of them, they saw it in two threw some of them in a well, spit at them, threw rocks at them. Tough sledding in most cases. But I did pray for fruit. I prayed that God would send people that would love his word, would want to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord and minister then to one another. And slowly by slowly, folks came in. And did that. That's a great joy, which I don't take for granted. And so now when I tell people, come, I don't say, oh, come, because all we, we open the word and, and read the word and, and preach the word, which is foundational, fundamental. But you know what else you can do? 
you can see God's people, real Christians. And that's a blessing to me. Real followers of Christ. Oh, they, they're different about a lot of their tastes and practices and things that they desire, but I tell you what, deep in their soul, they know Christ. They've heard his voice. And they're following him. And it's a great encouragement. I think even better just to be in the presence of God's people. To be encouraged by them. To hear their prayers. To hear their testimonies. I love when the men read the scriptures around here and and talk about how it affects them. For others to pray and so forth and see how God is working in their life. Well, that wasn't scripted, so now I'm in trouble. But this is what God does in the church. He unites people in Christ, fed on his word, overflowing in fellowship with one another, truly communing with Christ, and prayer to be essential part of their life. And so why... Why this, why this union? Let's look at Christ's reason he gives for it back in our text at verse 21, 17, 21. Why? Because this, beloved, is a witness to the world. He has organized this, sent these apostles out to, to make more, to be in union with Christ and with others. Why? Because that the world might believe that you have sent me. Verse 21. How's the world going to believe that you sent me? It is the united fellowship of the saints proclaiming the words of Christ, living it out in their own life, Forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us. Praying for one another as Christ has prayed for us. Encouraging one another as Christ encouraged us. Serving one another as Christ has served us. How did he serve us? We already see it in the demonstration of how he served his disciples. The union then with Christ is not some sort of mystical superficial, superstitious, hocus-pocus type thing. It is a genuine, supernatural change of the very heart. You're bound to Christ and sanctified by Him. I think I can go through two more texts and I'll have to finish. But I think it'd be helpful to look at that. Let's look at Romans chapter 6. This union with Christ is what is the basis for our union with one another, and we cannot forget that. It is a supernatural change of heart. It is His grace which changes the disposition of our own heart. In Romans chapter 6, Paul has told the church at Rome that whatever your 
transgression is, Christ will forgive. That grace, as he says it, abounds more. And that's something we need to have fixed on our mind. Where sin increased, grace abounded more. So what shall we say then, verse 1? The objector might say, do we then continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, if you say that, aren't you just letting people off the hook so that they can go out and party on Saturday night and then come to confessional on Sunday? Can I tell you this? The, the, uh, the apostles' message, that's impossible. So you can go ahead and preach where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. You need to know it. Is anybody going to take advantage of it? No, it's actually impossible. That's what my translation reads, verse 2, by no means. Meginetal. It, it's from Gunamai, it, and by putting the may, it's a negative. That is, it isn't a possibility. Why is that not a possibility? And he gives the argument right here. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, this union with Christ is not just some verbal confession that you make, some sort of, uh, some sort of um, creed that you confess. It is a supernatural experience in which you're united to Christ, and therefore it is impossible to live in continued sin to be the practice of your life because you've died to it in reality, in your union with Christ. How can we who died to sin still live in it, as he says? Through your union with Christ, that's where he's going. Think of Christ as we commune with him today. What did he do? He took on sin on his body, and then he did what? He died to it. He was buried. It was complete, paid in full on the cross. Buried, truly done. And then he rose again in newness of life. That's what he's getting to in this next section, verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who have been, and here I would like to translate, immersed into Christ, because you, you might be confused. Baptizo is Greek, it's transliterated, that's fine. The word means immersed. He's not talking about some ceremony physically. We do that to point to this spiritual reality that those who have been immersed into Christ were immersed into his death. When Christ died to sin, all of those in Christ also died as well. That's what he's pointing to. We're buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's how you overcome sin in your life. Be united with Christ. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Those that are in Christ 
are made alive in him. We're made alive together with Christ. It is because of his grace. He is, as Paul would tell the church at Ephesus, raised us up with him and seated him, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus is good as done. Ephesians chapter 4, that's my last text. I'll finish with this. Ephesians chapter 4. We have been changed, beloved, if you're in Christ from death unto life. It is this union with Christ then that changes everything about us. Including giving us the ability by the Spirit to obey Christ and to be obedient to the faith. And it overflows in a practical reality in our union with one another that the gospel might go forth. In chapter 4, Paul calls on this and he urges the church then to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Verse 1 of chapter 4. You've been called to walk in newness of life. That means to live this kind of lifestyle. We know this is only going to be done by two things. One, a regenerate heart. Two, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But you're still called to do this. To practice this in your life with what? All humility and gentleness, with patience, and then bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. One of the joys of being a pastor of a church that is regenerate and that has a desire to walk in newness of life in Christ is the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And if you've ever been in a place that is not united by the Holy Spirit, there is no peace, just chaos. Isn't that right, Ken? <laughs> We've been there, haven't we, brother? It isn't because, some, oh, we're better than their, whatever they've got. Not at all. You have unregenerate people gathered together. No wonder there's tribulation. No wonder there's a lack of unity. I'm not saying everyone agree with me. Not at all. Let's agree with the scriptures and continue to point to that to be our source but strive to put away our own pride strive to put away our own disposition towards evil and error to engage one another in true love you know patience kindness <laughs> peace gentleness Stuff like that. What will occur of this? There's, and then he, then he drives home, verse 4, this unity together in actual reality. He's reminding of, this, of their spiritual union, which overflows into our union with one another. There is, verse 4, one body, one spirit, 
just as you've been called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. As I've said, we may differ on ecclesiastical practices, personal preferences, according to our conscience. We may have different ministry efforts and so forth, depending on our gifts, our calling, and the needs of the time. But this solid unity is in Christ and Christ alone. He has called his disciples then change their heart in union with Christ, which affects then how they might live. And it is experienced not only in their personal walk of holiness, righteousness, but in how they engage with one another, particularly in the body of Christ. And when people that are outside Christ see that, they wonder, wow, that is a great witness to the work of Christ in somebody's heart where they will actually forgive one another, where they will actually be kind to one another, where they will actually humble themselves, serve, and sacrifice not out of what they're going to get out of it, but that there's a driving conviction in the heart to do just that. Beloved, I'm not asking you to uh, achieve perfection in this life. We'll talk about perfection in, in Christ next time, in verse 22, where he says, I've been given this and I give it to them. We'll unpack that in a bit. I'm not asking you to achieve that. But there is a progression of that in your life. It is a demonstration of the new life in your heart experienced in the day-to-day life. Union with Christ is not just a religious concept. It's a reality of life. Let us pray. Father, I'm thankful that you have regenerated my heart. At times I, I think of myself as such a wretched man for a failure to live up to all that you have called me to do. And as I know, on behalf of these people, they feel the same. I pray, Father, that Christ would, though, be that which is first and foremost in our thoughts. I pray that the power of Christ in us would be so much overflow in our life that it is demonstrated, certainly, in our union with one another in Christ, that he might be exalted. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, I'll give you a minute privately right where you're at to respond to Christ. You want to confess your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and have him change your heart. He will do it now. You come to him. He will not cast you out. If you have um, any other concerns in, in your heart, perhaps you're struggling through some of these things, this isn't a matter of the flesh. This is a matter of the spirit. And he will grant to you the ability to overcome the deeds of the flesh 
and to demonstrate the love of God in Christ Jesus in a practical way. Take a moment privately to think and respond to Christ right where you're at.